Welcome back, good people of the interwebs. This is Ryan, and on this episode of the Brew Theology Podcast, we continue the conversation with Reverend Ann Dunlap talking about Paul's letter to the Romans as a letter of resistance against the empire. Cue your Lord Vader theme Star Wars song. That's right, we are flipping the conventional narrative in the framework of systematic theology according to Paul's letter to the Romans on its head and looking at Romans as resistance. That's the gospel. That's the good news, according to Anne and many other scholars and people. So if you want to go back to episode 40, part one, and check out the different mentors, influencers, and books that Anne mentions, please do so. And if you like part one, part two, or any of our episodes on the Brew Theology Podcast, please do us a major favor, big favor. Go to iTunes right now and look up Brew Theology Rate it, review it, share that love online with your friends. We are at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter along with Facebook and Instagram, at Brew Theology. Of course, there is a lovely webpage, brewtheology.org, where you can check out the different ways in which you can sponsor, you can partner, you can start up a Brew Theology chapter right now, this summer. This is what's happening right now. Shout out to Eric right now, Eric Strickland, out in Ohio, Canton, Ohio. He's going to get a Brew Theology chapter started this summer, late July, early August. Also, the Jersey Boys are going strong. Shout out to Jersey. And uh, possibly some other communities up and emerging. We will be at the Wild Goose Festival coming up in July 13th through 16th. So if you'd like to talk to us, we will be on the main road with the booth with some koozies as well. And you can also chat with us uh, in the late night hours around a campfire smoking some stogies and uh, listening to some good music. Uh, that's coming up, wildgoosefestival.org. Go ahead and get your tickets. We're going to be on uh, the Goosecast stage on Friday night between 5.30 to 6.30, the happy hour time, doing the Brew Theology podcast live there, as well as another time where we will be contributing, talking about uh, Prost. That's, that's the session. So look for us, Prost, P-R-O-S-T. That means cheers. And we will see you at the Wild Goose Festival. Next is the Theology Beer Camp that we've been talking about for a while now. It's it's coming up. I mean, this is coming very soon, August 18th and 19th. So make sure you get your tickets. Go to TheologyBeerCamp.com where you will get to hear Peter Rollins and Trip Fuller in the Mile High City on the 18th and 19th. And if you're in Denver, we have something special for you. Uh, that's right. I mean, as if it doesn't get cool enough. We're going to have 12 breweries. We're going to have tacos and cornhole and late night cigar sessions and nerding out and podcasting and new content. And you're actually going to get to ask Trip and Pete uh, why they're wrong about things. And they're going to have to defend themselves. So not only does it get that cool, but it gets cooler if you are actually in Denver right now because we have a special session for you. Just email me. And I'll let you know about the details there. If you're here a night early for that, uh, you might want to email me as well for that. So uh, without further ado, uh, listen to this episode, share it online, and make sure this summer you are dressed in fashion with some brew theology swag. It's getting hot. It's going to be 90-something degrees here in Denver this weekend. Wherever you are across the entire United States, it's getting very hot. So go get a tank top. Go to the Brew Theology website. Click on that swag button. Get yourself a tank top. If you have a little kid, you get your kid a T-shirt. My daughter's going to be rocking a Brew Theology T-shirt this summer. And my baby, yes, that's right, my eight-month-old child, is going to be rocking a onesie. So go get your onesies, your tees, your tank tops, and all that good stuff at brewtheology.org. Friends. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. And I'd love to hear from you soon. Peace.
Beyond, so then you have a guy who wrote during this uh, first century, around 5060, mm-hmm. d- during the time of an, this emperor with this empire, this Rome. So let's let's go. Let's transition to Rome and the empire. Mm-hmm. The, give us the, the the framework, the background to this letter in pretty much the entire New Testament. <laughs> this <laughs> the entire New Testament. This won't take that long. This won't take long. Some people read the Bible as if it fell out of the sky. They need right. This. Um. It didn't fall out of the sky. Uh, I think it's. I think it's really important. As I've been doing uh, m- um, my podcast with Surge, uh, the Word is Resistance, and really like digging into these texts every other week with with like movement eyes on them. Like, what does it mean to be a part of a movement that's actually trying to live in resistance, and what kinds of things get uncovered and things that we see and the kinds of conflicts that happen. And, and we don't always just, dis- we don't always agree on like, should we be doing this or should we be doing that or, or whatever. Um, and that drive of empires to try to colonize and um, extract, but also make like into one thing like univocal orthodoxy. Like, so there's only one voice. There is one universal voice. And that that drive of empire, whether it was Assyria or Egypt or Babylon or Rome or the United States now, that that drive to make it just one voice, one thing, one people. um, And the Jewish lived experience of trying to be faithful to the one God in the face of that. Um, And so to understand... um, what is happening in Palestine during Jesus's lifetime of Jesus being part of a movement, John the Baptist being part of the movement, the Pharisees being part of a movement, other, you know, the Essenes and different, um, different groups. Um, like I said before, you know, Jewish folks being pushed into exile, uh, you know, Palestine really being treated as like a, like a little puppet state with, with Herod. Um, and, you know, people's labor being exploited. Um, Chad Myers does some work around, you know, what what was it like to be like a fisherman around Galilee? So these are like working class people, carpenters and fisher people, um, and the ways in which um, their labor could have been exploited, you know, for building up these, these Roman um, fortresses uh, around Palestine. Um, and I think also the, the drive of, of empires to always try to make us faithful to something else that is not... God. Um, so all, all of the New Testament is wrestling with uh, what does Jesus mean in this moment and in this movement and seeing the violence that's happening, um, the violence that has happened, the violence that happened to their community, um, the violence that happened to Jesus, because it's, it's an execution by Rome, um, as much as uh, some folks want to, even within the text themselves, want to blame Jews. Um, it's an execution by Rome. It's an execution by the state. Uh, and so we have to take that seriously. Um, and that by the time um, you get to uh, like Matthew and Luke and John, um, all of those people are dead. Like they've been executed um, by Rome, <laughs> um, including Paul. So there's something serious going on here, and uh, 
much of the New Testament being written after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so looking back and trying to make sense of, uh, did, did we, did, did we realize this was going to happen? What happened in Jesus's life? Maybe he, maybe he tried to warn us. Um, uh, cause you have texts that are both right before that. So like Paul's is like letters are right before that. Mark's gospel is like right before that. But you can, once you start, like reading with that in mind, you can feel that that tension in the text of, you know, that that increasing, like maybe like what we feel even right now in this current historical moment, like shit is bad. And what are we gonna do? And even with Nero coming in under the guise of like, well, it's all gonna get better now, is the is the propaganda at the beginning of Nero's um reign as Caesar. And I think I talked about this last week, then Paul being like in Romans 13, yeah, don't be fooled. Like that's a legitimate way to read that text, those verses beginning of chapter 13. Like don't be fooled. He's wielding the sword. The imperial propaganda about Nero is that he put the sword away. Right. And so Paul saying like, they're still wielding the sword is he's trying to tell the people something. And then, you know, not long after his death, then, Jerusalem is destroyed. The pe- the Jewish people are carted into exile. The the um, temple is is destroyed and stripped. And you've got you know um, structures, uh, the Trajan Gate um, in uh, in Rome that like depicts stuff being carted off out of Jerusalem by Roman citizens uh, into Rome, um, and then uh, Jewish folks being turned into slaves to build some of those buildings that now we go and and visit as like great historical sites. So all of that context, um, I don't remember what your question was now. Something about that. <laughs> yeah, just ta- talking about the first century empire of Rome and its dominance and mm-hmm. its ability to, uh, to pretty much put people in their place, whether yeah. you're, you're Jewish or Christian. Uh, now, there, there has been... I think I read about, was it Rodney Stark, the sociologist who talked about the rise of Christianity, and he talks about how some Jews converted to Christianity based, based on the persecution and taxation purposes as well? Anyway. I'd want to know when that... That's another topic. ...is, because in, in Paul's time, there, there wasn't any such thing as a Christian. You were just Jewish. And follower, a follower of the follower way. A follower of the way. Um, and it's not till, you know, like... 50, 75, no, 100 years later that you start to get that, that bifurcation of, well, well, we're going this way. And, and we're clearly going this way. And, and now we're apart. And that is, that's an ugly mess. <laughs> um, and it's, it's not entirely clear. Um, but would people convert to try to get the empire off their back? Sure as heck you think they would. People will do what they need to do to survive, so... So you had mentioned Romans 13, and so let's jump there right now, because some people are wondering, what's Romans 13? And they're going <laughs> on, their, on their app right now on their phone, or checking out their Eugene Peterson message Bible off to the side. Nice. So, I'm, I'm being, what do you mean? I'm being, I, <laughs> that sounded a little snarky. It wasn't snarky. Okay, okay. It was, <laughs> yes, it was not snarky. And he has a new book that just came out too, I happened to see today. You guys think because I joke a lot that that was, but it was not. So here, so then Romans thirteen, what, Paul seems to have a a switch from a, a literal reading from Romans twelve 
living the godly way to Romans mm-hmm. 13. Oh, but submit right. submit to the governing authorities because God put them in place. Right. So that should be your clue that that's not actually what Paul is talking about. Like literally the fact that it's such a jarring switch. If you understand, first of all, you got to understand that chapter 12 is a whole chapter full, you know, starting off with 12, you know, 12 to do not be conformed to this world. Um, and then through that whole chapter, all, all of the things that he's telling them to do, do this, do this, do this, do that, um, are antithetical to how the Roman Empire operates. So first of all, there's that. So when Paul says, do not be conformed to this mm-hmm. world, he is speaking of the world of Rome. Right. The empire of That's Rome. That's what I think. The, the Caesars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when, when you come to... It, it should feel jarring, I think, when you get to, to the, the first verse of, you know, so submit to the authorities because, you know, they're, they're the ones in charge. Like, how does that make sense with what he's just said? Um, because it, it doesn't. Uh, because after you get those, those, that little set of verses, then he goes back to, like, love is the fulfillment of the law and a whole other set of, like, um, telling the strong not to take it out on the weak and, and you know, a whole other set of, of behaviors. Um, Overcome evil with good. If your enemy's thirsty. Yeah, that's chapter 12. But, but still, you know, it, it's in the context of this set of chapters that I think the whole letter has kind of been building to. Like, you're, dear Romans people, um, you know, you're actually not meant to live the Roman way. You're meant to live against the Roman way. We're meant to live in resistance to that. And this is why, and these are the, the things out of the tradition. And, you know, you're joining this, you're not, you know, appropriating it. Um, and so many, many translations into English at, at the start of chapter 12 will actually have like, therefore, <laughs> like you get this conjunction in there. Um, so it's some very strong wording. Um, therefore, you know, present yourselves as a living sacrifice do not be conformed to this world, um, all of that. And then everything else is like this whole list and exhortation about how to live counter to the way that Rome tells us that we should live. Um, so then those, those few verses there in chapter 13 should be jarring because um, they seem to not fit at all in that understanding. I could talk more about that. Yeah, go ahead and tell us <laughs> what you talked about uh, yeah. last week about what these verses, how they might be understood and interpreted in a way that makes them make a little more sense. Make a little more sense. Yeah, I think, what did I say? It was like three... Three points. Three three possibilities. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out which one I go with, but kind of depends on the day. But um, so this is what I really explored when I when I studied Romans with uh, Dr. Eisenbaum. Um, so the one option is understanding um, Romans um, that those verses in Romans thirteen as a as a hidden transcript. Um, so James Scott, uh, who's a scholar, talks about um, for oppressed peoples having having a public transcript that might be acceptable in the face of power. Um, and but then a hidden transcript that sometimes might be coded so that power doesn't understand that they're being talked about <laughs> in in particular kinds of ways. Um, and so 
And that even actually people in power do this. They have a public transcript uh, and, and also a hidden or a private transcript of how shit's actually going down behind the scenes while we're making America great again. Um, so one of the ways to understand uh, uh, those verses in Romans 13 is um, like a, a coded message to the people in Rome to uh, pay attention and to watch their backs. Um, and that, uh, you know, Nero is not the nice guy that everybody says he's going to be. Um, and so that's one way to read it. Another way, and I don't know that any of these are like, like you have to choose one, actually. They could all be operating at the same time in a way. But another way, the, the verb that's used there for submitting, I don't know how Eugene Peterson translated, tra- translates it over there, but so, <laughs> right in 13.1, yeah. All yeah. governments are under God. Yeah. Be a good citizen. See, this is why I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Eugene. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, Eugene Peterson. That is not a responsible translation. <laughs> Of that verb, of the Greek verb there, which is um, uh, about submission, but it's submission with, full, with your full consent and your full faculties. Paul uses it in, in other places. I wrote an exegesis paper on this. So he uses it in other places to talk about, like, you're making a choice in the moment. So you have a mind of your own. Um, and so the last thing the empire wants, <laughs> I scared somebody off apparently, um, the last thing that the empire wants is people who can think for themselves, which is what that verb implies. So again, kind of the, oh, we're bringing something else now. Um, this is a bigger Bible. Whoa. This is the Apocrypha King James Version. King James. Well, let's see what King James. Yeah. That's why it's bigger. It's got the Apocrypha in it. <laughs> what do we got in the, in the King James over here? Uh-huh. Let every soul be subject unto the higher power. So there you get kind of more the, the tenor of that word, right? Being subject to, submitting to. Um, so, again, um, that kind of clue, a verb that means you have to think for yourself in the midst of this, this context where, you know, empires don't like it when we think for ourselves. You know, they're happy to, to feed us um, fake news and propaganda, uh, and, and have un- us just go uneducate people and and un- uneducate us, yeah. Um, so again, that's another clue there that that the the literal meaning that we've made of of this text is not necessarily so. Um, a third option, um, which Neil Elliott writes about in his book, The Arrogance of Nations, which is which is about Romans and reading um, an anti-imperial reading of Romans, is um, because this letter is written specifically to the Roman citizens of this community, that um, what he is telling the Roman citizens of this community is to uh, not put the more impacted people of their community at risk of further oppression by imperial forces, Um, which is why he ends up telling them to pay their taxes, because there's all this tension around taxes and there are tax riots going on all throughout this time um, because of unfair taxes. And so to be accountable to the poor and working class and Jewish and um, folks who are enslaved, uh, folks in the community, and not to just, you know, flaunt themselves at authority in a way that's actually going to have a harsher impact on on the more impacted people um, in the community. 
which is always a risk of social activism, right? It's sort of like one example being like the suffragette movement where you get white upper class women protesting, but it's it's the the poor working class women who are getting like force fed and imprisoned. I mean, it's it always the the weight of change always seems to fall on people with less advantage. Yeah, I think I think that's true, and I think that's why in the work of Surge. Um, we really try to center the value of accountability, of being accountable to leadership of color. Um, so for example, in Denver, with our Denver surge chapter, that looks like um, if we know we're gonna do a, a direct action of some sort, that we check in with our accountab accountability partners um, in the community, organizations and individuals, um, leaders of color, organizations led by leaders of color, um, uh, to, you know, to, to talk to them about the potential risks and fallout um, of the action that we might do, because we know, especially in, in the Denver context, where the police department is so brutal against communities of color, um, like murderously brutal, um, we know that while we may take a little bit of the brunt of, of uh, backlash, it's communities of color who are going to take much more um, of that uh, backlash. And so we have those conversations and if they ask us not to do something and then, then we won't. Um, so we try to, to follow their lead in that, in that aspect. Well, all of a sudden we're talking about United States. So, <laughs> so let's, so let's back it up. Can we just quickly for people who may not be used to thinking of the United States as an empire, an empirical, no, that's imperial. different imperial as an empire, yeah. as an empire how we how we can make that connection for folks. <laughs> Is, is there an easy way of explaining that? I think understanding that this is not the, the story that we like to tell ourselves, right, as a country. Um, but the way in which our country was formed in um, genocide and the slave trade and the ways in which this, the systems of power were set up to continue to grasp and extract both land and labor and consolidate power and wealth into the hands of a few. I mean, those are all very imperial dynamics and to, and to try to take that and to, and to extend it and to snake it out into, into everywhere um, we can get our hands into. Um, you know, when you can go into villages in Guatemala and you can't get milk, but you can get Coca-Cola. I mean, that's, that's empire um, at work. Uh, it's not how we like to think about ourselves. Um, uh, there are ways in which uh, the, 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 the systemic power functions, um, the kinds of myths that we tell ourselves, that drive that I talked about earlier of empires trying to make you faithful to something else that is not the one God, that is not the, the, the vision of, of the divine for us as humans. Um, we have those same... Uh, myths and stories and ways in which um, we're tried to um, convince to be made faithful to those ideals, those beliefs, those practices um, that are actually antithetical to the, the highest visions of what, of what the divine has for us that are, you know, for, in Christian tradition that are revealed for us in scripture, um, but also in experience and in listening to folks who um, now live in, in similar situations to the folks who, um, who wrote down their stories for us. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away by the, the fact that 
you know, script, the scriptures that we have in the Bible are are the stories of the losers. So we never get the stories of the losers. You know, history is written by the by the winners, right? That's that's what we're told. Um, and and is you know very much in in many ways true. But when you understand um, scripture is like the story of of first this kind of you know, no-name group of people that eventually becomes Israel, um, trying to figure out how to survive uh, as they're being trampled over by empire after empire after empire and how to stay faithful, and that they eventually, you know, in, in, in imperial terms, they lose time after time after time. Um, you know, Jerusalem's destroyed not once but twice. You know, the, the northern kingdom is carried off into exile and never heard from again. Um, uh, you know, this, this um, pattern that happens, and yet we have their stories and how they were trying to figure out how to be faithful, how, to, how do we govern ourselves, how do we how do, we do this, um, and yelling back at God half the time, which I think is also really brilliant. Um, that was a tangent from your question, but... <laughs> no, that was perfect. So... Um. This goes backwards a little bit, but I think it yeah. ties into America and today. Um, one interpretation of Paul and even Jesus is that, yes, they talk about a new kingdom and a new domain, but that is a spiritual kingdom. It's not necessarily political. So I think a lot of American Christians today could say, might not be super fond, might not be patriots per se, but... Their stance, and I heard this a lot during the election, is like, one of them is going to get elected, neither of them are great, doesn't matter, like, Jesus is king. So this idea that, yes, you have this stuff going on in the political realm, but Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that Paul was working for, was a spiritual kingdom. Yeah, and we heard that a lot as well in different circles growing up, and even in my adult years in ministry. So my question would be, do you disagree with that? And and if so, what was Paul picturing in terms of a revolution? You know, was he waiting for an eschaton? Did he want Rome overthrown? Mm. And what do we picture today? So three questions in one. Hmm. (laughs) Eschaton, yeah. I I definitely, you know, because I dedicate my life to the material well-being of of oppressed people, um, would disagree with that interpretation that that language of, of kingdom or whatever is just, that's just a spiritual realm. Um, I don't know how you can read scripture and come away with that idea, um, with that interpretation, whether you're reading uh, the story of the Exodus, where God clearly cares about the lived embodied suffering of God's people and works through those same people to get them free and liberated out of that oppression of their, of their bodies, of their spirits too, but also of their bodies, um, into what I think everybody for a while hopes will be a better situation for their lived on this earth experience. Um, the prophets are, this, are the same. Uh, the kinds of visions that the prophets have are about the material lived on this earth, embodied um, freedom, healing, um, access for everyone to food and to shelter, 
and to community and to love. Um, and we see the same thing in Jesus. I mean, Jesus healed people's bodies. He didn't say, well, you know, you know, dude, okay, because, you know, all, all better when you get to heaven. He heals his body. He feeds people who are hungry. He actually himself cries. He raises people from death into life. Um, and, and I think, um, yeah, I don't, I'm always just astounded that anybody could come away from these stories thinking otherwise, um, that what Jesus is talking about in terms of the kingdom. And again, like Paul, you, you know, uses the language of the empire um, to push back on imperial logics and theologies. Uh, the gospel writers do the same thing. So the language of, of kingdom is the same, like the Basileia, that's the same language that Rome uses for itself. So we're going to create something completely non-Rome-like um, to the extent that once we do it, we can't even call it that anymore, actually, because it's not an empire once you're actually living in these ways. And I think for Paul, it's, it's the same. I think, you know, Paul gets, uh, is the, the ambassador, if you will, of this vision to Gentiles and helping Gentiles, which is basically like non-Jewish people, but people around the Roman Empire, like understand they don't have to follow that way either. They don't have to follow the way of Rome either. And so building these communities, these like multi-everything communities um, in people's homes all around the empire where people are making sure everybody's fed, he gets really ticked off in some of his letters when the rich people come in and they eat all the food and then the poor people don't have anything to eat when they get there because they've been working all day. They can't just lay around. He gets really mad um, about, about that. Uh, and so I think he as well is, um, is concerned about like the lived everyday bodily material life that is um, harmed uh, in real bodily ways by Rome. Could you talk a little more about that in context of how that plays out in oppressed communities now? I, I don't even know if I know enough to ask the full question, but I've heard African-American people talk about how kind of the trauma and the stress of being in an oppressed class lives in their bodies. Um, and so, and, and Christians, we kind of have this very, uh, I'm going to forget the word, um, where, where we separate. It's very Greek. We separate the spirit and the du body. Dualistic. Dualistic yeah. view and the Gnosticism. Yeah. And so, like, when we're talking especially about resisting empire and we're talking about um, meeting the needs of the oppressed around us and serving them, how important is it in understanding that our bodies and their bodies matter in that? I mean, I think in some ways it's the, it's the key to everything because we create um, the empire we live in now creates meaning out of bodies. Um, what color your body is, whether it's um, policed as male or female, um, uh, whether it's uh, policed as um, foreign or um, American, if you will, um, we have uh, in the in the modern world, um, 
you know, creating meaning around, you know, the skin color of people's bodies. Who's, uh, who's pure, who's dirty, who's savage, who's civilized, uh, who's a threat, who's evil. Um, that, that particular kind of thing we don't have in biblical times, because that's a, that's a modern invention with the rise of, of the, of the slave trade. Um, and, and of, uh, the, the rise of colonization and, and gen- the genocide that went along with that. Um, and so the well-being of people's bodies, I think, is, is crucial to any kind of justice work that we do, that we're not, we're not just talking about some kind of, um, to maybe go back to, 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 to your thing about like some kind of spiritual realm but that it has to matter in my daily lived experience um, and, and like the lived experience in my body um, uh, and, the, and the impact, um, I think, for people of color uh, living with racism every single day and the wear that that places on, on the nervous system, for example. And the, 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 how the, the nervous system kind of gets degraded over time. And when I talk to, to my folks, I mean, that's a daily lived experience that we as white folk don't understand. I, I can extrapolate out of being like a queer woman identified ish sort of person, um, uh, of you know what it feels like to to be looked at, to be stared at, to be told different different kinds of things. Um, but still, my whiteness protects me in some way from that. So we so yeah, I think it's it's absolutely crucial. Um, and uh, women of color activists, um, activist scholars will make that point very clear that if your justice work is not about like the material lived lives of people, um, then it's not doing its job. I was really, uh, in our notes here on question two, you paraphrase Romans six and I just found it to be completely devastating to be honest. Um, and last week, um, you know, we had an amazing conversation around the table about this. So, I'd like to read it, or if you would like to read it. Go for it. Okay, so it's a paraphrase of Romans 6, 12 through 23. So don't let whiteness be what you embody to make you obey what you've been told it wants. Don't let whiteness run your life as weapons of injustice, but offer your whole self to God as one who has been brought from death to life, and offer your whole self to the divine as tools of justice. For whiteness will have no power over you, since you are not governed by its law, but are under grace. When you were mastered by whiteness, you were free from regarding justice. So what privileges did you get that you're now ashamed of? The end of those things is death. But now you have been freed from whiteness and bound to God. The privilege is being one of God's own, not having to obey what culture calls normal. That's end of times living right now. For the wages of whiteness is death, but the free gift of God is life, ends of time living right now. 
And for those that didn't memorize this last verse, uh, the way we learn it at church is for the gift of God, for the, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In this paraphrase, it says, for the wages of whiteness is death, but the free gift of God is life, end of times living right now. And we were just encouraged to just pause and listen to this and let it set in us. And so I'd encourage you to just take a minute, if, you, if you're able, to rewind and listen again and let that sit with you. Um, I know for me, I was just confronted with my own privilege living outside of Boulder, Colorado in a nice little house in my own little yard with my cat and my husband. I should put that in the right order with my husband and my cat um, <laughs> and our two cars for two people. Um, we have lived at times in our lives where we were very not privileged in the sense of we struggled to eat and we struggled to have a car that ran, but that's not where we are right now. And um, very confronted deep into my soul, like I'm going to take this piece of paper home and put it on the fridge because I need to read this every day to be reminded of what, of, that what God has given me is not mine. This is what that means. That what God has given is not mine. It is mine to give and to share and to make all things new to the best of my ability. Um, it just has whole new meaning to me. And uh, I want to thank you for, for forcing us to read it, because we need to. Um, and many of you who are listening know that we've talked about some of these concepts before, and if you have any questions uh, about this particular passage and want to know more where to look or what to read, just let us know. Send us an email, um, and we'd be happy to walk with you through that. Uh, thanks, Chanel. That's definitely a good reminder, a good kick in the ass, which is I think we need. If you invite the kick in the ass, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> so thank you. I, I, I will say, so this, but this type of a passage, before it's reworded and paraphrased by you, it's based on individual salvation. It's based upon this Western notion, going back to dualism of like, you don't even look collectively or covenantly, if that's even a word, within this greater uh, community that we call, with it, whether it's Christians or Jews, or we see this as a, it's a personal salvation between you and God. It's mm -hmm. this transaction that somehow you're making with this deity who sends his son as a pound of flesh to free you from your sins. And yet how warped is that when you look at this first century Roman empirical world with these enslaved humans who are minorities and they're beaten down and they're oppressed and they're on the fringe. And yet you see from the gospels on, these are the people, like you said, they're the ones that write this story. They're mm -hmm. the ones that give Rome the middle finger in very subversive ways. Mm -hmm. So rather than seeing, as Eisenbaum said, Paul's letter to the Romans as an answer to this question, how can I be saved? She says, rather, it's the answer to the question, how will the world be redeemed? And how do I faithfully participate in that redemption? Mm -hmm. So let's get practical now. How do we, not I, right. we faithfully participate in that redemption? And I, I think that differentiating between the I and the we is really crucial. Um, Crucial one, understanding, again, coming back to these stories and, and who they're for, because they're always meant for the collective. Um, 
the prophet's words are meant for the collective. The the liberation from from uh, from Egypt is meant for the collective. Um, the instructions are meant for the collective. Uh, some things get lost in translation or and or hidden from us um, in translation uh, from from these scriptures. But it's the collective. Paul's talking to communities of people and how they should be responding to the situations in which they find themselves. Um, and Romans is no different, even though it sometimes gets couched as like, you know, this theological treatise on, you know, before, before his death, he's summing it all up. He's addressing a community just like he addresses all the other communities who are having issues. And this happens to be Rome's issue. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a key thing is that, it's the, the practicality is uh, we can't do this work all by ourselves. Um, and this, this liberating work of the divine is intended for the collective whole, obviously for each one of us as, as individuals, but individuals who are also connected to collectives. Um, even some of our more, um, hermit type mystics understood themselves to be connected to to communities um and doing vital work exactly right um so can you maybe uh i don't know uh can you try to like take the individual message that we get in romans this that this is the romans road this is the the certain verses that i read to say this prayer so that jesus comes into my heart and maybe recapitulate that for us in the collective a little bit of like how should we interact with romans when we're reading for the gift of or for the wages of sin is death and the gift mm -hmm. of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord that becomes like the verse of like well if you're sinning you need to come to jesus and he will save you what it, what how how do you feel Paul is really what's he saying there? Uh so I didn't grow up evangelical so I don't, okay. I don't know about the Romans road and and well it's all very all individual. That. But <laughs> um I think one of the reasons that I I played with this paraphrase in this way is because I think what Paul understands as sin in Romans is the ways in which Rome operates um, as, as a systemic whole, as, as Dr. Tinker would say, the systemic whole of Rome is the way of Rome is sin. Um, this is a sinful, um, violent way to try to be human. It's an inhuman way to try to be human. Um, and so that way is death. And so trying to figure out in this paraphrase, um, because I understand whiteness not to be a culture, but it's a system of power. Um, white supremacy or whiteness is a system of power that um, makes meaning out of people's bodies and which bodies we're going to value and which bodies we're not. And so the way of whiteness is death, death for communities of color and also death for those of us um, who are raised as white and might might claim that label um, um, as white. So those of us who come from uh, uh, Europe, uh, the lands of Europe, um, with the lighter skin that we have. 
because it damages you to to live in a place where you can't acknowledge humans for humans, where you have to be telling yourself a lie. Yeah, I think it 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 damages us um, in that way. I think also um, because in order to have access to the benefits that the system promises us, we have to confine ourselves within certain definitions of what it means to be human. Um, a colleague of mine, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter 5280, Bianca Williams, talks about this, that like, if you want those benefits, then you have to perform whiteness in certain kinds of ways because you will lose them otherwise. And so that, that kind of limiting of, of our full, uh, full expression as humans um, is also harmful uh, to us. So um, there's systems in place, systems of power that are centered on whiteness right now and capitalism and military might. How, according to Paul, according to you, do we change that? How does change happen in the world practically? Huh, that's what we're all trying to figure out. <laughs> um, I think what Paul was, was trying to do was um, setting up these communities living a completely different set of values um, around. That's, you know, in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and in Rome. Um, and I think as well trying to... As best as he under, I don't know that he would have put it this way necessarily. I'd like to ask him sometime um, when we're all in heaven and Jesus has come again. I'll ask him. But a a kind of understanding of um, a shifting of resources, and so from from the powerful to uh, to the systemically powerful to the systemically powerless. Because I would I would never want to say that the people who are oppressed have no power because they absolutely have power because that's how shit changes. Um, and so, like, this collection that he's taking up, you know, he's going around and visiting these communities that, that are in, like, big, powerful centers. You know, Corinth and Philippi and all of these, you know, Rome. He's Ephesus. Um, he's trying to get to Rome so he can collect from Rome um, and send, you know, this collection that he's been going around from these more privileged communities. Uh, they... They may be multi-everything, but they've also got people who've got some access and who've got some wealth um, to, to get to Palestine where they need it. Um, and so that kind of, uh, yeah, redistribution of wealth, like literally redistribution of wealth. Um, I, I, I wonder about that if that's, you know, is he thinking just charity or was he thinking like, no, you people in Rome, you got to, you know, got to shift some resources um and and get it to the people who need it most um so i think there's those those pieces of what paul is doing and that that inspires me um that we can also build communities where we're living out values that are counter to the values that we see trying to be force-fed to us around as capitalist values, white supremacist values, um, uh, homophobic values, uh, transphobic values, all those kinds of things that we can, it's not an, an individual act, right? That all of a sudden, like, I'm not racist anymore. Cause first of all, that's not going to happen, but that doesn't actually shift power. It's the collective doing that together. 
Um, and building on that and building on that and building on that to the point where systemic power has to take that seriously and actually change. And hopefully eventually, like in my vision of how things were to happen, like make it completely irrelevant. Like we don't, we don't actually need DC. We don't need the state capital because we're taking care of each other on the ground where we are. And the last thing I'll say that I'll, well, you talk about that is there also has to be in that process um, for white folks decolonizing our minds away from being colonizers all the time and being committed to the land where we are and to the, to the place and the space where we are and knowing this place's story um, instead of trying to move everywhere and take everything um, to just be here uh, and um, and what would that look like? Like if we didn't if we didn't need Washington anymore, you know, if we didn't need state capitals anymore, um, but a completely different way of organizing ourselves. So you seem to answer the overarching question that I think, at least I know Ben, you had and I had, <laughs> but it, then it comes to a point of okay, so if you've if you've gotten this these groups of people collectively yet. Yet, kind of individually within each context of, you know, even even in like so Denver, and then you have Broomfield, and you've got Arvada, you've got all these communities all across the nation and then globe, who are doing this. In a way, they're doing it in a way that looks at DC and even the state and even whatever other whatever, yeah, any anybody out there in politics. But then they go, oh well, these guys are onto something. Do you think it's just going to be this cycle where then they go, they look like they have influence and they have power? And so then it, that's been then that becomes appropriated, and then it, it just becomes a part of the system all over again, like mm-hmm. it always has. And I would love to say that there's going to be no more DC, but there's <laughs> always so because when we say DC, we're saying Rome, mm-hmm. we're saying Babylon, we're saying any you know mm-hmm. Great Britain when back in the day. <laughs> Sorry, Brits. I, I guess the the question is, how do you ever know when your group of people have the power and when they don't? And then once you do have it, I mean, what do you, because yeah, I'd love for us to be a, let's, you know, redistribution and um, that sounds great in theory. I don't know. I, part of me, a part of me just, I want to be an idealist Mm -hmm. and I want to believe in this kingdom vision on earth as it is in heaven. But then I am looking at the cycle of the history of the world and then I get, I I get this kind of despair mode of, yeah, "Ah, is it, is it ever going to be? Yeah. So then you get to this other Christian worldview that has this escapism. Well, you know, back to the kingdom. <laughs> well, this kingdom doesn't really matter. You can do your best, but ultimately there's going to be another kingdom outside of this realm. And that seem, doesn't seem to add up either anymore, according to my hermeneutic. And even just my heartbeat. My heartbeat wants to believe in what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So then practically speaking, the Anabaptists, they have a way, but their way seems to be so far removed from society at times but at the same time, it doesn't. It depends on the kind of Anabaptist Mennonite <laughs> right. worldview, right? And even their, you know, that specific ideology within that culture. So even you have some Mennonites who are they try to embed themselves within the world as the best they can. Mm-hmm. But then there are those who go, they don't pay taxes, they don't vote. Like it's it's this. So which where should we? La- I mean, I know that you don't have all the answers, but <laughs> where do you where do you all think we should land? Because there is the Anabaptist way on the far extreme. And then there is the appropriating neoliberal 
Uh, it smells like DC, even though you think it's, you know, all things Hillary. Sorry. I, and I did vote for Hillary. It's for the record. I'm just saying <laughs> I wanted Bernie to win. But even if Bernie won, he was going to be a part of the system. Right. So I'm rambling right now. Yeah. But I mean, I I'll, think one of the things that Neil Elliott in, in the Arrogance of Nations thinks that, um, Paul's frustration with some in the Jewish community was because they kept this particular group of people kept turning back to Rome to save them. Like we, we have, we have rights. Why won't you get, give us our rights? And Paul's like, Rome's not going to save you. I mean, maybe like momentarily, like for five minutes, but as soon as it's convenient for them to scapegoat you for something else, then, you know, it's God who saves. Um, and so, you know, trying to, I think part of the, the, the problem when we find ourselves in, in, in Western uh, kind of white Christian context, even progressive context, is that we keep looking to, to Bernie or to impeachment or to, you know, to whatever to save us. And that's not what's going to save us. It's never what has been going to save us. Um, and so, I mean, I do agree that I think in parts of our planet, the, the dynamic, the, the human dynamic seems to be this like teetering back and forth between like the imperial drive and the, we might call it, you know, God's kingdom drive and a whole lot of messiness in the middle, but not everybody's lived that way. Um, our, our, kind of white Western idea that like, this is, this is how it always is. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that whiteness does is try to decide, uh, declare that you know, our experience is universal and it's not, there are indigenous ways of relating to land and to each other and to creation that have nothing to do with any of these dynamics at all. They haven't, you were saying before, like everybody has something to sell. That's not indigenous practice. Like nobody's interested in selling anybody anything. I didn't mean that in a very literal <laughs> way, by the way. And that was said before we pressed record, right. just so you know. But it stayed in my head. Um, and I think that the best that we can do is, is figure out what our values are, how those values are aligned with, with the, the sacred that we, that we understand, if that's the kind of people that we are, um, as spiritual, as faithful people, and to, and to put our lives towards that. And a lot of people will say that's impractical, but you know what? Capitalism's not practical. It's killing us. It's killing the planet. Whiteness isn't practical. It's killing us. It's killing black little boys just this week. You know, three black children just this month. Um, it's killing us. Homophobia is killing us. Transphobia is killing us. Uh, the, the, colonization as we still are practicing it if folks haven't weren't paying attention to standing rock go you know figure figure that out i mean that's it's killing us it's killing the land it's killing creation so that's not practical either so let's throw our impracticality towards something that's actually going to be healing and beautiful and good um and and make a difference in people's daily lived um experience towards towards beauty and healing and goodness and art and creativity and um, the honoring of children and elders and animals and plants and all, all of those good things. And I think, you know, Dr. Harding said, um, 
Dr. Vincent Harding said once, we're always, we figure out like one little piece of freedom, you know, and then we realize there's more we've got to learn. So we figure out that next piece, and then we realize there's more. Like there's, it's this, we never have it all figured out all at once, um, which is why he liked talking about um, this as opposed to like the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s as like an ongoing freedom movement that is the counter story to the story we tell ourselves about this country, the, the, the black struggle for freedom from the first moment that Africans were enslaved by Europeans. Um, and so it's a, it's a freedom movement and we're, we're always in movement and we're always not necessarily in like progress and we're going to get there someday, but like we figure out a piece and then we realize, Oh, there's more. We can be, we can actually be more free. And, you know, I spend like half my days terrified about the moment that we're living in right now because it's immensely harmful and dangerous to people that I love and potentially even to myself. But the possibility that we can do something completely different right now, now that everything is laid bare, because there's, there's nothing new about what's happening now. It's just laid out bare for everybody to see. Um, this is who we are as a country, embodied in somebody who makes our skin crawl, but this country should make our skin crawl. Um, so it's there for us to see and be like, oh, we're not doing this again, and we're going to fight, and we're going to create community, and we're going to be accountable, and we're going to follow the lead of people of color, and we're going to all try to get free together because this, this way is death. And I think the answer in that, from my tradition, we always talked about that I will learn more and become more free, but it was always individual, that as I progress in my pr process of holiness, that God will show me something new that I need to work on, and then I can confess that and fix that. That's not enough. It has to be as a community, and we all have to do that. Yeah. And and I think that, that we're doing that in brew theology. I think we're doing that in the communities we live in. I know you do, Ryan. You love Platt Park so much, and you're so invested in this space and your friends there and the people there and the children there. Like, you are making a difference in that space, and that's what we can do. And just pay attention. Like, uh, yesterday, I mean, I, we were at the store on a holiday I know probably some of the workers' nerves were frayed and upset, but I saw something that wasn't right. And instead of rushing back to my house to barbecue, I went and found a manager and said something because it was somebody that couldn't defend herself. And that took time and energy out of what I was doing, but that's, that's what it's going to take, doing that personally, doing that lift building each other up to have the strength and energy to do that and then doing it together when opportunity is there and making opportunity to support surge and yeah. other organizations that are doing this work around us. Yeah. And I think, you know, extrapolating out from, from what you're describing then, um, that in that, you know, individual encounter that you had yesterday where you chose to give up some of your comfort and your convenience, um, to do the right thing, uh, that that's also part of being accountable for white folk 
we've been made way too comfortable in the system. And so being willing to give up comfort, give up convenience, um, give up power, um, and to shift those things like Paul was shifting with his, you know, in my mind anyway, with his um, offering to Jerusalem, um, doing that collectively, you know, those one-on-one moments are, are important. Um, but when we can do that as bodies, and again, my, my colleague Bianca Williams says, like, structural, like, getting free from structures re- requires, you know, the collective giving up of comfort all at once, like collectively losing all at once. So all of us doing that, um, uh, whatever our, uh, you know, it can be um, people who are socialized uh, as men doing that for for folks socialized as women. It can be um, heterosexual folks doing that for queer folks. It can be white pe- people doing that with, with people of color, um, but ref- refusing the power that we're handed by this system um, that actually isn't what interested in our well-being. You know, that's a handful of people at the top, right? They're actually not interested in our well-being. Um, they're happy for us to work ourselves um, to death to be replaced in good capitalist industrial models. Um, so we all have something to gain in the long run in that work. All right. So <laughs> thanks for your time tonight, Anne, and for the rest of you. If people yes, want to find you on Twitter or they want to know what you're doing in the hood because you're doing some good stuff in Denver, where can they find you? What are you doing? Who are you affiliated with? All that, and then we'll wrap it up. All that. Uh, let's see. Um, on Twitter, my handle is uh, Fierce Rev, so that's easy to find. Um, I have a website, fiercerevremedies.com, where um, I do some writing about the work that I do, but also um, the the herbal work that I do as well. So the activist, herbalist um, intersection. Um, I keep my Facebook private, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she finally you know, accepted my friend request after a few months. And after I appreciate I actually that. Met you. After we met. That's part of my deal. Who now is this is strange like, guy? I actually have to meet you in person. <laughs> no, thank, thank you oh, for, uh, yeah. for your time tonight. Yes, and thank also, you. We, we, of course, as a Denver Brew Theology community, which we have many Brew Theology communities, we got to have you at the pub at Wits End. So if you want, and if, if you want her to travel, go to her website. Yeah. I've, I've got stuff on my website about how you can. Uh, bring me to to speak to you um, and to work with you around some of these same questions so check that out fiercerevremedies.com fierce all right guys uh, cheers we have empty glasses cheers. clinkity clink <laughs> thanks everybody 